Good morning. If you've got a bulletin, my name is not Scott West. We are not in Romans today. Uh, Scott is under the weather. Uh, still fighting back and forth with this pneumonia. Uh, texted with him a couple times this morning. He is, he's doing well. Uh, so he's just getting to know some of my old friends in the hospital and setting the record straight. So he seems okay. Uh, we are going to be in 2 Peter this morning, chapter 1. Uh, I picked 2 Peter uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, I was looking at preaching out of it a few weeks ago. Uh, I thought about 1 Peter, which would be logical to start at 1 Peter, but uh, over the last couple of years, the women have gone through 1 Peter, Bobby's taught through 1 Peter in Sunday school, so I thought, well, let's, let's move on to 2 Peter um, and since I don't preach every week, uh, it'll be uh, kind of a nice break um, now and again from Romans. Um, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into the Word. Father, we do thank you. Uh, there is no other name as great as your name. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your grace that overflows abundantly. So much more than we deserve. We need you. As we sang this morning, you bring freedom, you bring peace. There is no condemnation for those of us who walk in your spirit and walk by your spirit. So help us have eyes to see as we walk through a world that is against you, that does not submit to your rule and your reign. Help us in our own hearts submit to your rule and reign and look at the world through the eyes of the gospel. As we open your word this morning, I pray that you give us wisdom and insight through your spirit that you would teach us. Give us counsel. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read and then we'll talk a bit. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love." For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, intro into Second Peter. As I, as I think about what, how Peter opens this letter, I think a lot about our world in a very, what seems to be a tumultuous time and day that we live in. Um, I think about the culture. The culture that we live in today is not the world that I grew up in. The way people think, the way people speak is 
very, very different. Uh, we're confused about who we are. We look at gender identity, sexual orientation, abortion. Of course, that really hasn't changed over the, my lifetime. But the world is in stark contradiction as far as principles and the way that it thinks in a philosophical level compared to what Scripture teaches us, which the Word of God teaches us. And so this bothers us. It angers us. It stirs up fear in us. And it kind of throws us off balance many times. We don't always know how to respond. After the last few years, since COVID, and just all of the response of society, governments, medical care, all of it, we get thrown off base a little bit. Financially, we're reaping some of the repercussions of some of the things that we did. And so financially, the world seems much more difficult. The economy seems much less stable, at least in my own life. I feel like I'm paying out a lot more money and getting a lot less for it. Uh, my electric bill is, I've never seen it this high. And I don't know that I'm using more electricity than I did a few years ago. Um, Everything just seems more expensive. And this creates anxieties in us. This creates fear in us. And of course, we look at recent events around the world, geopolitics. You look at Israel and Palestine and the countries around. And you think about Iran and Russia and China and Lebanon and Syria. I think about Turkey. It's my friends over there. Worry, anxiety, stress, fear. And as you look at the world, you think, man, it feels, it feels like we're at a boiling point. Like it's going to overflow into something much more dramatic. Something bigger in human history. And if you look at social media, you look at the mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, everybody has an opinion about all of these topics, and when we look at the Middle East, it seems that everybody's pretty unanimous there, even if they're in stark disagreement, the other side must die. Total destruction is the end goal. And it doesn't really matter who's talking. And so I'm not naive. The heart of man is wicked. Wars will be fought. Men will die. Women will die. Children will die. And some wars have to be fought. But we look at all of the circumstances in the world, whether it's our culture, whether it's our finances, whether it's world politics and war, and we have to ask the question, how do we respond? How does the church respond and what lens do we look through in order to engage the world, not just on a world stage, but in our individual lives, in our own hearts? How do we pursue God and honor him in the midst of such circumstances? How do we just engage the world in general? It's always going to come back, first and foremost, to the Word of God, to guide us, to lead us by His Spirit. And so that's where I always want to turn our attention to, and I think that's what Peter is doing here. See, firmly gives us a foundation to stand on. Because by the time we get to chapter 2, he's going to be going after false prophets and false teachers that come into the church that try to deceive us and sweep us away. And so I want you to be alert. I want you to be aware that false prophets and false teachers don't always stand up at the front of the church or the heads of other religions to teach you, to pull you away in false teachings and philosophies that would deceive you, deceive you and lead you to death. More often than not, right now, they're on your television, they're on the radio, they're in your pocket, and they're constantly feeding you what they want you to believe from multiple angles. And you can find whatever it is you want to reinforce whatever false teaching it is that you hold dear. 
So I think Peter starts out like we should start out, and he starts with the truth in chapter 1. Absolutely laying the ground for us to reason through tumultuous times, times of deception, consider our view on the world and on our own lives individually, how we follow God, how we walk in the Spirit of Christ, no matter the circumstances, geopolitics, culture, economics. We always start with the same foundation, the same truth, which is the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. It's always got to go back through there. And we hammer this and hammer it and hammer it because we so easily lose sight of it as we look through the world. And we start pursuing our causes. And we forget why we are here in the first place. So let's start back. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now I think this is a bold statement for Peter. And I think of somebody else that has bold statements like this, and it's Paul. And these two guys, out of most of the guys who wrote the New Testament, I think these are big words for them because of the history that they lived. Paul was murdering Christians. And Peter's on the other end. He follows Jesus. He's with Jesus. He's bold. He's brash. He speaks out without thinking. He's ready for a fight. He cuts off a guy's ear. And Jesus is like, slow down. It's not what I'm doing. We know Peter from the night of Jesus' arrest where, where that took place. But even before that, Jesus says to him and says to all the disciples, you will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. But before we even get to the end of that chapter, it all happens. It all plays out just like Jesus said. <clears throat> Now, Peter's sitting outside the courtyard. A servant girl comes up to him and says, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to, and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. And this is Peter. The ground underneath his feet shifted, and it shifted quickly. He was ready for the fight. I'm going with you all the way, even if I have to die. And the ground shifted, and accusations came, 
and he sees Jesus on his way to death, and his response is denial. Even Peter, he fell away, the disciples fell away, he denies Christ, bold, brave, and brash, and still shrunk back. He didn't understand. But now we see him as he writes this book and says, a servant and an apostle of Christ. There's been a change. At this point, for sure, for many years, he's been restored to Christ. He, Christ came to him and brought him back, forgave him like a one-on-one, like beautiful. And now many years towards the end of his life, he's writing this book, and he says, I am a servant and an apostle servant, a slave, a bond servant, a man of servile condition, one who gives himself up to another's will, devoted to another to the disregard of his own interest. It sounds more like Jesus. That Jesus gave himself over to the Father's will at the expense of his own life, pain, suffering, and death for your good. And now Peter, because of the cross, because he saw Jesus go to the cross, died and raised to new life, Peter walks in new life because now he has the Spirit of God dwelling inside him. And so now he can say, yeah, I'm, I'm a slave to Christ. I have been swallowed up. My identity, my purpose, all that I am is centered on and rooted in Jesus. Not only that, he calls himself an apostle, a delegate, a messenger, sent forth with orders. And so we know this in the specific sense of the 12 apostles, which Peter is claiming to be one of the apostles who walked with Jesus, who lived with Jesus, and now speaks with the authority of Scripture as he teaches the church what it is to follow Jesus. He is establishing his authority to us and to the churches that he's writing to and his responsibility in Christ to them. He writes to them to encourage them and to strengthen them, remind them of the truth, and guard them so they do not fall away. They are not swept away by false teachings and false prophets, and that they keep their heart and their mind and their eyes focused on where their hope remains, which is in Christ and his return. So if you look at the book, that is the progression that we will see go through. We'll see Peter go through. But today he's establishing truth, that the consummation of our redemption is in Christ's return. So we must focus on Christ as the lens that we look through as we navigate this world. So in the second part of this verse, Peter grounds the church in the truth of the gospel. And he identifies them as such, as he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For sure, Jesus is the one whom our eternity and our lives all hinge on. If he does not live, if he does not die, if he is not raised from the dead, then Paul says we're to be pitied above all men. But God has established his church, his plan of salvation, reconciliation, and redemption through Christ. And this is the truth. This is the message 
that Peter has submitted his will, his life, his existence and eternity to. To not only behold it, accept it, believe it, but to proclaim it and to live it out. That our faith in Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, the one who has established our salvation through his righteousness, through his work, not ours, our acceptance, our redemption, our adoption as sons and daughters, that that relationship between us and God becomes one of family, a unity. You hear Jesus speak about this a lot in John. One with the Father. That we are to be one with him as well. That God has chosen us in Christ to be unified with him as family. And he demonstrates this through his love, or demonstrates his love for us through his work on the cross. And this is the identity of the church. Peter speaks about the promises here. And if you look back to the Old Testament since the days of Adam, the heart of man has been in rebellion against God and walked in sin. And so death and decay and destruction have followed us all of our days from generation to generation. And suffering is a result of the fall. It's a result of sin in the world. And some of that suffering is directly because of sins you have committed in your life. And it's the consequences you reap for walking in that sin. And it's hard and it's brutal. And sometimes you suffer and see death and decay just because there is sin in the world. And so sometimes you suffer because of other people's sin, and it's awful. And the world itself is groaning and broken because of sin. And so there's tragedies that happen like earthquakes and hurricanes and natural events where we suffer because of it. And the world is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And it happens when Christ comes. And that promise of salvation was made long ago, at the very beginning. When Adam and Eve disobeyed, God gave us the consequences, gave them the consequences, and said death would come, and many other things. And in 3.15 of Genesis, he says, I will put enmity between you, talking about the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And it's the first glimpse we see of God putting this right, what we have destroyed. And then in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he's speaking to Abraham and he says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in 12, 7, God speaking to Abraham says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Which I bring up that verse because in Galatians 3.16, Paul gives us clarity on all of these promises and cites this one specifically. And he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The blessing of the nations, the promises of salvation, of deliverance from sin, death, decay, and destruction, redemption, adoption, love, and acceptance by God come through one man. That's Jesus Christ. Stick with me. I know it's a lot of text. But Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1, he prophesied about Christ. 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a shoot out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is Jesus, who Isaiah speaks of, of his coming hundreds of years before Jesus is born. Jesus is the one who has suffered as we suffer. The suffering that we deserve, he has taken upon himself. He has tasted death and bore our griefs and our sorrows, our afflictions, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, for our sin, for our betrayal. He says, we like sheep have gone astray after our own desires, our own wants, but it's by his wounds that we're healed. That through his suffering, we are brought near, that we are loved, we are accepted, we are made whole, we are made to be like him, we are united in him. Through his suffering, he brings us peace. I believe that's exactly what Peter is referencing here in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So if you look through the New Testament, many of these books, this is a common greeting. They will often open with some form of this phrase of grace and peace to you in our Lord God Jesus Christ. Some formula of that comes up several times. I did a quick survey. I didn't even go book by book, but these are the books that I quickly just looked at, and they all had it. Thessalonians, First and Second Peter, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, and Romans all have some form of this grace and peace to you. And every time I do an intro one of these books, for the last several years, I've been like, don't blow past these intros. It's not just a pleasantry that we open up a letter with. There's intent behind it. It is the gospel on display and what is extended to you and what is given to you, and that's the foundation that Peter's starting with here. It fascinates me, Paul, I mean Scott, not Paul, Scott preached on this from Paul's writings in Romans a few weeks ago. I don't know if you remember, but he was talking about the peace of God and where that comes from. And I truly believe that that is why Peter and Paul open up their letters with these words, grace and peace to you, because it starts with the grace of God. The grace of God is extravagant. If you're familiar with Tim Keller, one of his sermons, Bible studies, there's videos on at this point, is prodigal God, which you're familiar with the prodigal son, but he uses the term prodigal God. One, we are not really familiar with what prodigal actually means, and so it kind of gets your attention But the idea is that it's overspending. 
that the son went out and spent all that he had recklessly. But Tim Keller kind of turns it on its head a little bit and said, God's grace is abundant. It's overflowing. And it feels like, it looks like to us, it should, it's too much. It's too gracious. It's too abundant. It's too overflowing. Because it is extravagant. It's beautiful. It's kind. It's loving. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He has poured out his grace upon us, lavished it upon us according to the riches of his grace, as if he had an infinitely large vault that he just continues to pour his grace out. It seems too much. As we've talked about, we've disobeyed, we've rejected God. And if you don't believe the story of Adam, you're like, eh, it seems silly, it's fairy tales then I just ask you to look at your own heart. Look at the people around you. Forget about your actions. Look at your own heart and your own motivations. You tell me, when you're alone and you can be honest with yourself, that all of your thoughts are pure and kind and loving and self-sacrificial. Or are they selfish? Are they murderous? Are they filled with hate? Even just one. It is the heart of man. We have rejected God, his wisdom, his commands, and we have established ourselves as king in his place. We have tried to dethrone him. We have tried to recreate him in our own image that he would be obligated to do what we desire, to be a genie at our command. So in spite of this rejection, the only one who is holy, perfect, righteous, and pure in thought, intent, and action, the one who created you, who sustains you, who gives you breath in your lungs, the ability for your heart to pump, to pump the blood that goes to your head, to give you thought, to give your muscles the ability to act out in rebellion, the one who gives you all of this opportunity that you have rejected He is the one who extends us grace. He is the one who would be completely just in giving us what we desired and what we asked for, which is separation. And that's what we ask for. That's what we want in our autonomy. And our ability to choose what we want, what we think we want, we're choosing death. To separate yourself from God is to choose death. What else is there? There is no life outside of him. So in return, where he would be just in condemning us forever, no opportunity out, he is the one who extends the right hand of reconciliation. He is the one who pursues us. He is the one who suffered for you. And this is his grace to us. This is forgiveness. A forgiveness we don't deserve. 
And He knows your pain. And He knows your sorrow more than you do. Even in life, He mourned as you mourn. He looked over Jerusalem and He longed to bring them in. And they wouldn't. He saw Lazarus die knowing that he was going to raise him from the dead, and he still shed tears over him. He saw the effects of sin and death and decay and the destruction that it wrought. And still he calls us to himself. And it's this grace that brings us the peace of God, because it brings us peace with God. We rebel. And we brought enmity and strife and a fight to God. And we rage against him. Basically because we think that we're smarter than him. And that he is keeping something from us that we have decided is good. But he has removed it. He has forgiven us. He's paid the penalty. And he's made us sons and heirs with Christ that we would inherit a relationship with him and eternity with him according to his promise and not to our works. We are loved and we are at peace with God. And that changes everything. It changes our understanding of our worth and our value, both for ourselves and for those around us. So it changes how we see the world. And so that peace with God brings us the peace of God. There's really only one person in all of the universe that we need to feel like we have impressed or been accepted by, to be loved by, and that is him. But we've transferred all of that over to everything else in our life. Other people, other things, whether it's our parents or bosses or friends or spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends, or even ourselves, where we set standards that we should try to achieve in order to be a good enough person, to be loved, to be accepted. But every one of those things, when we try to accomplish them and we put all of our hopes in accomplishing them, and we do, it ends in bitterness and despair and anxiety, and so we rage. We rage against God, we rage against each other, we rage against ourselves because we're not getting what we want, not what we expected, we're not good enough. So we hate ourselves and we hate each other and it's all rooted in our hate for God. We've established ourselves as the king, as the ruler, and we're never going to live up to it. And we know that we could not live up to it. We cannot live up to the standard that God has put forth for us because of the sin that is in the world and in our hearts, nor any other standard that we create in this world for ourselves. But that's the beauty of the extravagance of the grace of God that brings peace with God and of God in our lives. In Christ Jesus, the standard has been met, He is perfect. And because he is perfect and you are in him, then you are loved. You don't have to strive to be loved, to be accepted. He did all of that work for you. 
and knowing this and believing this and setting our foundation firmly on this truth helps us look at every other circumstance in our life differently. And Peter longs for us and desires for us to continue to push in to him and to pursue him. As he prays, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peace and grace grow in us and our understanding of it as we grow in the knowledge of him and walk with him and know him deeply and are known by him deeply and walk with him. The more we know him, the closer we are to him, the more free you become. And this is, this is taking me years to actually get a glimpse of what this means for me in my own life. You don't have to achieve in order to be accepted, but you are free to pursue Christ and to work diligently and walk in obedience and trust him with being accepted and loved. The obedience is not a punishment. It's not a hurdle to get over. It is not your pathway to salvation. But incredibly, it's freedom, it's protection, and it is an abundant life. Because it turns out he made everything to function in a certain way, and he told you what that certain way was, and that life goes well with you if you walk with me and walk in obedience with me. It doesn't take away the sin of the world right now that you live in the midst of. But there is a day where it will. So we follow God, learning that on the other side of that, it's our rebelliousness that creates all of the pain and the suffering and the death and destruction that we live out. Three through eight as we finish up here. We'll read three through four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's through Jesus Christ and the power of God, his spirit working in us, that he gives us knowledge, he gives us insight and wisdom into the truth that leads us to his glory and his excellence. And that knowing him, walking with him, and by his spirit we are given peace. And it is the only way to peace. Peace with him, peace in our own hearts, and peace between one another. And that by partaking in his divine nature, we can't escape the corruption of the world by our sinful desire. Corruption has many applications. Moral decay, physical decay, death, and destruction. When we set our hope on anything other than the foundation of the gospel, it leads to death, decay, and destruction. Division, fear, anxieties, and despair. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I finish out here. And so as you look at your lives and you look around the world that seems to be in chaos and in some ways falling apart, seems to be in rebellion against everything that Scripture 
commands us, teaches us, the world thinks that they're going to find their purpose, their identity, meaning, peace, and abundant joy in pursuing fleshly desires, and it always ends in sorrow. Financial stability, the economy, it's going to ebb and flow. People will gain millions and billions of dollars, and they will lose millions and billions of dollars. But in the end, it's going to leave them bankrupt if that's where their hope is. No matter how much money, how many things you can buy and purchase. Governments will continue to lead. They will wage wars. They will win wars. They will lose wars. But the peace that we seek, the peace that we desire in this world is not going to be found at the end of a war. Not in our financial stability. Not even convincing the world, the world to behave better. Peace and abundant joy only comes from knowing the truth of who made you and what he made you for. And you were created by God, for God, to glorify him and to walk in his presence every day and then to enjoy him. And that's where abundant joy and peace is found, is with him. So for the believer, so when you look at the world and it seems like everything's falling apart, how do we view the world? How do we interact with the world? We look to the cross. We remind ourselves who saved us, who loved us, that it is God, it is Christ Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection and walking with him that brings us salvation and peace. And that this is the mission and the purpose that he gave us. To walk with him in relationship and to proclaim it to the world that the world might be reconciled to God. Because only it's the spirit of God can bring us peace can bring peace to the heart of men because that is the only thing. He is the only one that truly satisfies the needs and the desires of our hearts. And so our job is to pursue him and to make him known. God will save men. He will change men. And so we trust him with that work. So to the unbeliever, if you, if you do not know God, if this sounds new to you, but it resonates with you that there is no peace in your heart and in your life, no matter what the circumstances seem to be, there still seems to be anxiety, fear, depression, turmoil. You will not find peace without the grace of God. And it only comes through Jesus Christ. Only knowing the grace of God can truly bring you peace with God. And that is the peace that is essential to giving you peace of God in your own life, peace with yourself and peace with those around you regardless of the circumstances. God loves you. He's offering you grace and he's offering you peace today. So if you do not know him, please come ask questions. Ask questions of those around you. Open up the scripture. Read. Pray. Ask God to open up your heart and give you truth. Let's pray.